testifying this morning to the resurrection power, which is what Romans 8 tells us. Romans tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides inside of each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ this morning. So thank you very much for that. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 96. If you do not have a copy of the Bible this morning, we would like to invite you to use one of the complimentary Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and you keep that as our gift to you if you would need a Bible. Today we're going to talk about the subject to declare His glory among the nations. And as I mentioned earlier, many of you know that I just returned last night around 6 o'clock from spending the past 12 days in Uganda. I am honored to be part of a ministry known as Four Corners Ministries and have been working with them for about four years now. Four Corners in 2011 purchased some property in northern Uganda, uh, about two hours from the border of South Sudan. And we have been going through about a seven-year project of planting a holistic Christian community there in northern Uganda whose purpose is to communicate and demonstrate the gospel. Everything we do as an organization and as a ministry has a gospel-centered focus. There's a lot of ministries that do a lot of great work in Africa and in the country of Uganda. There's a lot of ministries and missionaries whose purpose there is to dig wells, and that's great, that's awesome, but we're not there to dig wells. There's a lot of ministries there whose purposes are to found orphanages and, and do orphan ministry, and there's a lot of that going across Central Africa. We are not there for that. We are there to communicate and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and the living hope that is found in Jesus Christ. So over the course of the last seven years on our facility, we have been able to employ some 100 different people in different capacities. The the rate of unemployment in northern Uganda where we work is about 98% unemployment. Most of the people there simply farm their own land and Many of them might have a, a trade doing something on the side that they can take to the market to try to sell. Well, we, we are able to employ some workers on our farm that uh, grow crops and, and help us to feed not only our employees but also our school children. We have uh, a child development program in which we have several dozen children that are sponsored by people here in the United States, very similar to what you would see with Compassion International and World Vision. And we provide uh, schools fees and some, some money to help their families with, with uh, nutrition and, and food. Uh, we've started a Christian school there that uh, is going through, I think, the equivalent of about third grade right now. Um, and we've also planted two churches, Livingstone's Community Church there at Abana's Hope. And then just about six weeks ago, we launched a church in town in Gulu, uh, which is the largest city there in northern Uganda that we are close to. And so we have two churches that we've started. And then in January of this last year, we launched a pastor training center because Uganda is led by a large number of passionate men who love Jesus, yet for many of them, they have not been adequately trained to preach the Word of God correctly or to rightly understand Scripture. Consequently, while we have a number of churches across the landscape of Central Africa, unfortunately, many of those churches are often fed a spiritual diet of moralism and legalism and sometimes the prosperity gospel. So we felt a conviction a couple of years ago to begin to try to tackle this problem of biblical illiteracy and gospel illiteracy in Central Africa by putting together a pastor training center. We have 46 men that came to our pastor training center for the last two weeks. 
Um, I met many of them. Uh, they are working among many tribes there across Uganda, as well as among our refugee camps in South Sudan. Uh, one of the men I met was a man by the name of Sam. Sam is, a, is an incredible guy. I wish I had opportunity to get the pictures and put them up here. I didn't have the time to do that today. But Sam is a Bugandan. That's his tribe. And Sam actually lives in the capital city of Kampala in, in southern uh, Uganda. Sam was once a Seventh-day Adventist who did not know Jesus, but was very uh, devoted to his religion and came to know the gospel several years ago. And now he is in a Bible-centered church and he's pastoring there in the city of Kampala. I met a man by the name of Innocent, who uh, also pastors a small church in the city of Gulu. Innocent is a very interesting man. He is, he is a man who is absorbing all of the things that we were teaching, uh, but was very full of questions. Every time we would have a break or we would have some kind of opportunity to, to say, does that make sense? Do you have any questions? He was always one of the first ones to raise a question and to ask uh, about how these doctrinal truths were working out in his life. One of the men that you saw in the video that we showed a couple of weeks ago was a man by the name of Richard Yanga. I was able to spend a significant amount of time with Richard. Richard is a man who is hungry for the Word of God, hungry to faithfully disciple people there in the refugee camps. Uh, Richard's only been a believer for about five years, and yet in the five years that he's been a Christian, he has started 12 churches there in northern Uganda. And so I taught these men on the subject of the Word of God and sound doctrine. And my, my goal and my aim was to teach them that this Bible that you and I have, this Bible that we're going to read from in just a few minutes, that this is not just a religious book, that the Bible that we have is the inspired, authoritative, inerrant, clear, sufficient, trustworthy, and living Word of the living God. And my goal and my aim was to help them to understand that, that this is not just another religious book on par with the Koran or the Hindu Vedas and Upanishads. That this is not just a religious book written by a bunch of men who lived thousands of years ago who wanted to tell us how to be religious. That what we have in front of us is the living word of the one true God. And if it is the living word of the one true God, then we as His people should read it diligently we should seek to obey it completely, and we should preach and teach it with conviction and clarity. And so as I began to, to pray about not only my trip, but what I would share with you when I came back, I felt a strong inclination then to do more than just give you a report on the work that I was doing. I will share that over the course of the next several weeks. But I wanted us specifically to look at God's Word, this living Word, to see what it is that He has to say about why we do missions. Why we do missions and why missions, whether in our own backyard or around the globe, is our primary calling as the people of God. I want us to understand at Central Park Baptist Church, and I want us to have a conviction that missions is not just about sending money or occasionally sending people to other places. Missions is about helping others in all places to properly know and worship the one true God. And so while I was preparing to go to Africa, and while I was there on the ground, I began to wrestle with this question. Why do we even bother with missions? Missions is costly. Just, just for me to go to Uganda and the airfare and all of the, the, the needs for me on the ground there, cost around $2,200. 
It costs anywhere between $25,000 to $3,000 every single time that I have led a team of people over there. Missions cost a lot of money. Missions is not convenient. As I mentioned a second ago, when I was in the airport in, in Tebe preparing to leave, when I, when I got through security and got settled at the gate, I took, my, I took my watch and I put the little timer on my watch and I started a timer that I wasn't going to stop until I landed in Huntsville and got out of the airport. So from the time I, I got in the airport in Entebbe until the time that I got out of the airport in Huntsville was 30 and a half hours. 30 and a half hours of layovers and airplane rides. And, and it was not convenient. Which begs the question, why would I get on a plane and fly over 20 hours in the air and leave my family for 12 days to go and train pastors? Why do we have families in Uganda like the Mobs family and the Corbin family and the Peyton family and in two weeks the, the Hagens family? Why do we have families who have left, basically sold almost all of their earthly possessions and relocated themselves and their children to the other side of the world to a place that is often hot in a place where people speak a different language, in a place where you can't just get in the car and drive 10 minutes to Walmart to pick up whatever you need? Why do we have families that have made that kind of sacrifice? We do it because God deserves the worship of every person on this planet who He created in His image and whom He created for His glory. We do missions because God has called us to declare His glory among the nations. And it is my strong conviction based on the Word of God this morning that we do missions because missions is worship. And we do missions because true worship propels us to the mission of God and propels us to declare His glory among the nations. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that if we as a church ever come together to go through what we would call a worship service, and at the end of that worship service, we do not feel a compulsion to go out and declare the very same truths that we declare in here to the lost world around us, then we haven't actually worshipped. We've sung songs, we've gone through religious motions, but the reality of the Word of God is that missions is worship, and missions propels us into the global plan of God to declare His glory among the nations. And so this morning, I want us to see the relationship between missions and worship in Psalm 96. If you would, read this text along with me. The psalmist says, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Now you'll see there in verse 1, let's just stop there for a second. You see there at the end of this verse, in, in verse 1, we're going to do a little English grammar this morning. You see at the end of that, there's an, what, an exclamation point, right? So when you read this text, it's not sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. It's, it's an exclamation, right? Sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. We're to do it with, with, with enthusiasm. One of the things that I tremendously love about going to Uganda is my Acholi friends understand what it means to sing to the Lord with everything they have in them. They sing and they dance and they get going up and down and back and forth on the stage. And, and sometimes they will begin to holler out. I don't really understand what it is, but they have this guttural yell that they will yell in the middle, middle of worship that they will go, ay, 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 and it will absolutely freak you out the first time that you're there when somebody behind you begins to do that. 
But they absolutely know how to worship the Lord, and they absolutely know how to worship the Lord with enthusiasm. That's what the psalmist is telling us here. Sing to the Lord all the earth. So at verse 2, sing to the Lord and bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Today I want us to look at this and I want us to see the relationship between worship, global worship, and missions. I want us to see four truths this morning. First of all, I want us to see the unmistakable call for global worship. As you read this psalm in Psalm 96, you can see that what the psalmist is trying to get us to see here is the importance of global worship. He's not just talking about individualistic worship here. He's talking about global worship. He's talking about all of the earth singing His glory. He's talking about all of the nations declaring His glory. There is an unmistakable call in Psalm 96 that our God demands and deserves the worship of every single person on this planet. As a matter of fact, in your notes it says this, all people in all places are called to worship and give glory to God. This this psalm is universal. It applies to every single person on this planet who is created in the image of God and for whom God has created for His glory. All people in all places are called to worship and give glory to God. This Psalm is definitively a call to worship. And you can notice the many references to worship. Three times in verse 1, we are commanded to sing to the Lord. In verse 3, we are commanded to declare God's glory. In verses 7 and 8, we are commanded to ascribe God glory and strength. And in verse 9, which is really the central theme of the entire psalm, we are commanded to worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. This is a song which is talking to us about worship and the importance of worship. And it's critically important that we understand what the Bible means when it speaks of worship. You see, in the contemporary evangelical church, when we use the word worship, often we are referring to singing and the songs that we employ in corporate and private worship. We'll go to church and we'll say, how was church this morning? You'll say, well, the worship was really good. And what we mean by that many times is we mean the songs that we sang were good. Or you might go and say, well, you know what, I went to this church and, and they have more of a traditional Worship, or they have more of a contemporary worship. And we use that oftentimes to describe the musical style of the church. But did you know that when the Bible speaks of worship, many times when it speaks of worship, it never ever speaks of songs or music at all? 
As a matter of fact, the great majority of times that the Bible uses the word worship, it's not in connection to any form of music itself. Sometimes the Bible speaks of worship and never mentions anything about music. For example, in Romans 12, 1, Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Romans chapter 12. Paul says there, in other words, that living a holy, sanctified life is a much truer act of worship than singing songs. Paul says your spiritual act of worship as a follower of Jesus Christ is to live a life that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. In other words, if you show up at church on Sunday and you sing the songs that are on the screen about God's glory and God's goodness, and then you go out and engage in immorality or live lives marked by greed and selfish personal indulgence, then the songs that you sang in church are empty and without meaning. It doesn't matter what you sing in, in, with your mouth if your life doesn't reflect a life that is holy and pleasing to God. And what we see here in the psalm is an unmistakable call to all of the earth to worship God. Who is called to worship? Well, we see four different classifications of people that are called to worship. Number one, all the earth. All the earth. Number two, we see in verses 3 and 10 that the nations are called to worship. Every nation, every ethnos in the Bible. In verse 3, we see that all the peoples are called to worship the Lord, declare His marvelous works among all the peoples. And in verse 7, we see that all the families of the earth, all the families of the people are called to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. In other words, who is called to worship? Everybody. These are comprehensive statements. Everyone is called to worship the Lord. And what the psalmist is telling us here is that our God deserves the worship of every person on this planet. Our God, He is the one true living God. We are to say among the nations that our God reigns, the Lord reigns. And because our God is the sovereign King of the universe, He deserves the worship of every single person on this planet. Did you know that everyone is a worshiper? Everyone worships something. Because the word worship means to ascribe worth, value, or glory to someone or something. Worship, the word in, in, in Latin, just means to give worth or, or value to something. And so worship is what we do when we put on our favorite school colors and yell and cheer at our favorite team in a football game. What we're doing is we're worshiping. Worship is what we do when we sit on a patio overlooking the beach and give God glory for the ocean. Worship is what we do when we get all dressed up to go out to our favorite restaurant and to savor our favorite meal at our, at our favorite restaurant. What are we doing? We're worshiping. Every place that we go, everything that we do, we are constantly on, on a journey to give worth and value and awe and glory to something or someone. Paul Tripp in his book, All, talks about the fact that we are all created to give glory. It's just inherently wired and in us. But one of the problems is what he calls all wrongness is what he calls it. All wrongness. And what he means by that is that ultimately what, what, we, what the problem that we have is that we give ultimate glory, worth, and affection to the wrong things. In this case, 
The psalmist not only commands us to worship, but he is directing our worship in the proper direction. We are not just called to sing praises and glory. We are called to sing to the Lord. And we're called to declare His glory. You see, it's not just important that we direct our worship in the right way to the Lord, but the content of our worship is as important as anything else. When we worship God, what we give glory to reveals the condition of our hearts. One of the things that I have discovered is sometimes in the church we think we are worshiping God just because His name is in a song or just because we use Him in a, in a testimony. But we need to evaluate the content of what we sing and the content of what we declare to God because sometimes we can, we can sing a worship song that has very little to do with what the Bible says about who God is. And sometimes in contemporary evangelicalism, we can worship God in a way that in reality, when you look at it, we're not really worshiping Him, we're more worshiping ourselves. The content of our worship is just as important as the fact that we worship. So what is the content of our worship supposed to be? What does the psalmist tell us that we're supposed to do? Well, number one, we're supposed to tell of His salvation. We're to tell of His salvation from day to day. We're to declare the gospel in our songs. Our songs should be gospel-centered songs. They should declare something about who Christ is and what He has done for us. That's what we did just a second ago when we sang Before the Throne of God Above. Maybe an unfamiliar hymn, but what are we talking about? We're talking about the gospel, and we're talking about, as David said, that we have an advocate. We have one who has gone before us, who stands before the Father on our behalf and pleads with us. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. What is that? That's telling of His salvation. We're to tell of His salvation. Not only that, the Bible tells us we're to declare His glory. Verse 3, declare His glory among the nations. Declare His glory among the nations. We're not to, we're not to glorify ourselves. We're not to sing about our glory. We're not to sing about our, our, our worth. We're to declare His glory. Not only that, verse 3 also says we are to declare His marvelous works. We're to declare His marvelous works. We're to speak about the things that He has done for us. Declare His marvelous works among all the peoples. And then finally in verse 10, we're to declare that our God reigns. Our God reigns. Our God is a sovereign God. Our God is the sovereign King of the universe. The Bible tells us that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead that He holds the key to death and hell itself. That our God is the sovereign, rightful King of the, of, of the world. And that ultimately, He deserves the worship of every person on this planet. We see an unmistakable call for global worship, but not only do we see that, we see a universal obstruction to global worship. We see a universal obstruction to global worship. What is that? Well, it's just simply this. All people cannot properly worship God and glorify Him because they don't know Him. You see, the Bible tells us that there's an unmistakable call for all the world to worship God, but there's a problem. Not everyone can worship Him. Not everyone can properly worship Him and sing to Him. Not everyone today can give glory to the Lord. As a matter of fact, missiologists tell us there's about 7 billion people on this planet and anywhere between 2 to 3 billion of them have absolutely no idea who our God is. And so while they are called and commanded by the psalmist to worship the Lord, they cannot worship Him because they do not know Him. 
The reason why I get on a plane and the reason why I fly 20 hours and the reason why I have a 30-something hour journey back home with very little sleep is because they're residing in Central Africa in northern Uganda are about 14 different tribes within about a two-hour drive of the facility in northern Uganda that are classified as level one, level two unreached people groups by missiologists, meaning that if there is any sort of, of evangelism going on, there's not much, there's not much church planting. There's very little in many of those tribes of a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so for many of those people in, in those, those refugee camps in northern Uganda, they can't declare the glory of our Lord. They cannot sing to the Lord properly and worship Him because they do not know Him. The problem is that sin causes us to direct our worship in the wrong direction. And as we said a second ago, we, we have a tendency to give ultimate worth and glory to the wrong things. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, we're not going to look at that passage, but Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that what can be known about God is, is, is plain to all people because God has made it available to them. He has made it known through, through His glory and through His creation and through, his, through our conscience. He has declared Himself to all people, but the Bible tells us that all people have rejected the knowledge of God and, exchange, and it's, instead have exchanged the glory of God for images to, to resemble themselves. We direct worship in the wrong direction. You see, this day, millions of people will gather together in a building very similar to this. And they will sing and they will chant melodies very similar to what we did. They will pray fervent prayers. And in many cases, their singing will even begin to work them into an emotional frenzy where sometimes they will spin around in the aisles or fall on the floor. They will bring a sacrificial offering and give something of great importance to their God. And the problem is not the emotion in their worship. The problem is the object of their worship. The problem is that they are Hindus and they are worshiping one of the thousands of Hindu deities in the pantheon of earthly gods. And they will do all these things. They will sing and they will sacrifice and they will pray to a dead, lifeless idol that cannot hear them and cannot answer them and is powerless to help them at all. You see, everyone worships, but not everyone worships God. Every tribe on this planet lives with some sense of God and the spirit world. And why do all of these tribes and people groups have these elaborate rituals? Because they inherently understand that there is something bigger than us that deserves our honor, our worth, and our reverence. But the problem is that just like us... Every one of us has exchanged the glory of the one true God for lesser glories that we can taste and see and touch. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 5 when he says, The God of all the peoples are worthless idols. You know what worthless means? It means not worthy of worship. The word worship means to ascribe worth. And when the psalmist says that, that the gods of other peoples are worthless idols, it means that they are not worthy of worship. They, they, they are worthless because they cannot create anything of value in our lives. Sin has blinded our eyes to the glory of God and deafened our ears to the truth of God. Sin has caused us to turn worship inward to us, to our passions, and to our desires. Sin causes us to, to have what, what we call a worship detour. We all understand that we are to give worth and value and glory, but the problem is that we give worth and value and glory to the wrong things. And so we worship idols. 
And we may not worship a stone or a wooden idol here in America, but we worship the idols of, of greed and power and sex and money. These are the idols of our culture. In the pastor training center where I work this week, I work with pastors and other church leaders from several tribes in Africa that are unreached with the gospel. Some of them work with the Mahdi of Uganda or the Acholi or the Allure. Each of these are level one unreached people groups. In addition, they work with the Nuba tribe who are primarily Muslim, the Kakwa, the Bali, and many others. We had a church service in Gulu on Sunday morning in our new church plant. And that morning it rained. And when it rains in Uganda, it, it, people in, in Uganda have a harder time getting to church when it rains just like people in America do. Unfortunately, in America... We get into our covered driveway and get into an automobile that we drive to the church parking lot, and then we have to walk about 12 feet from the church parking lot into a covered, nice building in the rain. In Uganda, they have to walk up to two to three miles in the rain, and so they have much more of an excuse for not going to church that morning. We began our church service last Sunday, and my missionary friend, Chris, who was there with me, he said, you know what, it may just be us and these, these four guys that we brought with us, these four pastors. He said, I don't know if anybody else is going to show up this morning. If not, we'll just, we'll just do a Bible study. I said, that's great with me. And about 8.10, we were supposed to start at 8.15, about 8.10, the sun began to break out. The clouds rolled away, and slowly but surely, over the next 35 to 40 minutes, we had about 35 or 40 people that showed up at church that morning. And they sang, and they worshiped the Lord in song, and then we, we looked at God's Word, and we talked about what God's Word had to say, and then we dismissed there were about 35 or 40 of us in that building that day. But as we were leaving, we were driving out and we passed by a Catholic church that was there in the community. And Chris told me that no matter what, rain or shine, every single Sunday that Catholic church is packed. And sure enough, when we drove by there, that church which seated about 300 people was packed wall to wall with another probably 50 or 60 people standing outside looking in. And every one of them came to that church that morning, not necessarily because they were there to worship God, but because they were part of a system that tells them that they have to go to that church in order to receive the grace of God that morning. So for many of them, they sacrificed and got out in the rain when many others probably wouldn't. They got out and went out in the rain because they believe with all of their heart that if they don't go to that church that morning, that they cannot be saved. And they show up to pay homage to God even though they do so in a church that cannot teach them how to be rightly related to the Lord. You see, we have an unmistakable call to global worship, but we have a universal obstruction to that global worship. And so I flew in a plane at great cost and great time to train pastors in the gospel so that they can go to these unreached people groups to tell them about the one true living God who they do not know. We do this because of what I call the imminent return of our soon coming king, the imminent return of our reigning king. In verses 11 through 13, the psalmist begins to talk to us about the return of King Jesus. He says, Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and His people in faithfulness. What the psalmist tells us here is that all people, all people, 
will one day face Christ as the soon coming righteous judge. All people. You see, all people in all places are called to worship and give glory to God, but not all people are able to give glory to God because they don't know Him. Yet, every single person on this planet will one day face Jesus Christ as the soon coming righteous judge. Throughout the final verses of this psalm, the psalmist is establishing the sovereign reigning rule of Jesus Christ. In verse 10, we are to declare to the, to the nations that our God reigns. The Lord reigns. He is the King. So why do we come together and sing songs in church? We come together and sing songs because we sing to Him and declare glory to Him because He is the all-powerful King of the universe. When we sing in here, it's not just because we like music and we like to sing songs. We sing because we are worshiping and giving glory and declaring that our God is the God who reigns. Paul told the Colossians of Jesus Christ that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This is a, this is a statement, a declaration on the supremacy and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ as the King of the universe. And this King for whom all things are created and by whom all things hold together, has been temporarily displaced from us in our world. Our soon coming king has gone from our land with the promise that one day he will return. And just because he is not here now does not mean that he is not still the sovereign king or that his rule has ended. In the meantime, there are billions and billions of people on our planet who do not know who their true king is. There are billions of people on our planet that do not know about His goodness, about His grace, about His sovereign love that calls them to Himself. There are billions of people who do not know what He did to create all things and what He has done to reconcile all of us to Himself. Right now, there are billions and billions of people on our planet who do not know our King. And this is why we worship and this is why missions is worship. We worship and we proclaim Christ because one day our sovereign loving king is coming to judge his creation and to put everything back the way it was supposed to be. And so we see the imminent return of our coming king. And so because we see that there's an unmistakable call for global worship, and there's a universal obstruction to global worship and the imminent return of our coming King, then that leads us finally to the unending commitment that we must have as God's people to global worship and missions. We must demonstrate an unending commitment to global worship and missions. We must never stop singing of God's greatness and we must never stop going to the nations. As a church of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, every time we gather together in this place, we are to sing of the greatness of God. And every time we leave this place, we are to go out into this world that God has sent us to, to declare His glory among the nations. It is because, verse 4, our God is to be feared above all gods. 
is because in verse 6 that splendor and majesty are before him and strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And it is because in verse 10 that he is coming to judge the people with equity that we as a church must have an unwavering and unending commitment to global worship and missions. Let me be clear. Missions is not a spiritualized form of Christian travel where we get to see other countries and engage in some social justice relief efforts like building orphanages and digging wells. Those things are great, and they help greatly. But we do not engage in missions in order to go overseas and see what other countries are like. And we do not engage in missions just to relieve the plight of present human suffering in our world. We do missions and we engage in missions because we want every person on this planet to join in the worship song of Psalm 96. We want every person on this planet to sing to the Lord and to bless His name and to tell of His salvation from day to day. We do missions because we want a Revelation 7 moment like the Apostle John saw when he said, After this I looked and behold... A great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ deserves. And that's why we worship. And that's why we engage in missions. The goal of missions is to show people the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. The goal of missions is to do exactly what Psalm chapter 96, verse 6 says, to show people the strength and majesty and beauty of our Lord Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the risen Lamb of God and the only one worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. We as God's people must never stop singing of the greatness of Christ. And because Jesus wants the worship of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, we must never stop doing whatever it takes to take the gospel to the nations. Central Park, my challenge to you today is that we should never stop singing of the greatness of our God. And we must ensure that the content of our worship tells people of Christ's salvation and declares the glory of God. We must sing the gospel and not just entertaining religious songs that we find appealing. We must make sure that all of our songs focus on Jesus Christ and the gospel above all things. We must never stop singing of the greatness of our God. And we must never stop praying for, sacrificing for, and going to the nations to tell them about Jesus. You were created to worship God. You were created by God to do exactly what Psalm 96 tells us. And you were saved not only so that you could worship God rightly, but you were saved so that you could lead others who are not currently singing the worship song of Psalm 96. You were saved so that you could go to them and tell them about the glory of our God. Missions is worship. We don't often equate those two things together. Most of the time we'll talk about missions as a, as a program that we have in the church and we talk about worship as, as a program that we have in the church. But what the psalmist tells us here is that missions is all about the worship of Jesus Christ and worship is what propels us to go into a lost and dying world and declare the greatness 
and the glory of our God. Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes in just a moment? We're going to give an opportunity for you to respond this morning to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As David and our, as our team come to lead us in this invitation, I want to ask you this. I want to ask you, have you ever truly come into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, you cannot worship someone that you do not know. You cannot worship someone that you have not surrendered to. You cannot give ultimate value and worth to a God who is nothing more than an empty man upstairs. Have you ever truly received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If so, then the Bible tells for us there's nothing else that we can do other than to worship Him. But maybe this morning, your worship has been detoured because you've given your worth and your value and your honor and your meaning and your glory to something other than Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you need to simply trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you. That he came to live a perfect life on your behalf and he went to the cross to die a sinner's death in your place. And he did that so that not only would you come to know him as Lord and Savior, but that you could truly worship the one who created you for his glory. So maybe today you need to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Surrender to him. Just a moment as we sing a song, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. So whatever you need to do today, whether you need to come to be saved, whether you need to come today because something's not right and you just need to pray, whether you need to come for some other reason, you come and respond as the Lord leads. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you and you alone are worthy of our worship today. Thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus to, to overcome our worship problem to correct our, our all-wrongedness so that we could actually worship you rightly. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to worship you, and not only that, but to, to take the worship of Jesus Christ to every corner of this city and every nation on this planet. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing and respond as the Lord leads you this morning?